episode of the Ohio Paw Paw Festival podcast. By now, the festival itself is winding down for the year. As we bring this to you initially on Sunday night of the festival weekend, we hope you all enjoyed your time at the 23rd annual Ohio Paw Paw Festival. Please stay tuned to the festival social media accounts and website for photos and more information on next year. Until then, we still have a few more episodes to bring you of this show. And you can support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. Listening wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts already, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Share it with your friends. You can find previous episodes of the show. This is our fourth one. So there's a few more as well, including a pawpaw permaculture talk from festival founder and Chris Schmiel, how to process pawpaw in Nepal by Sarah Burr, and a fantastic brewer's roundtable featuring brewers from all around Ohio, including North High Brewing, Devil's Kettle Brewing, Sixth Sense, and Weasel Boy. You can find those on our anchor page as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. For episode number four, excited to bring you a talk from Justin Husher. Justin is a longtime pawpaw grower in urban orchards around Cleveland, Ohio. He hails from Lakewood. And this conversation is about something that he did over the last two years or so, which is to go from growing pawpaws mainly in urban orchard settings to doing it on 20 acres in Lorain County. Justin's going to talk to us about when an urban pawpaw farmer finally goes big. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. Future episodes also include the pawpaw cook-off and the best pawpaw contest, as well as a nutritional information talk on the pawpaw from Emily Anderson of Ohio University. Stay tuned for those in the coming weeks. And for now, I give you Justin Husher. Hey y'all, thanks for coming out at five o'clock during this lovely dinner hour. Uh, my name is Justin Husher. I'm giving a talk today about finally going big from urban orchards to 20 acres. Um, for the longest time, from about 2015 up until last year, I've been harvesting and growing uh, two urban agricultural farm plots in Lakewood, Ohio, that are only between the two 10,000 square feet and uh, they have about 100 pawpaws total between the two. Uh, that doesn't sound like a lot, doesn't sound like a lot of space, but in the last week I've harvested over 300 pounds this week alone, and I've been harvesting, this is like peak week, um, but I've been harvesting since the end of August and it'll probably go through October. So last year, right before COVID, uh, my wife and I, we bought 20 acres in uh, Amherst, Ohio, Henrietta Township, which from my door in Lakewood, Ohio to my door in Lorain County is 35 minutes and it's against rush hour traffic. I used to work for our uh, soil and water conservation district in Cleveland, Ohio or Cuyahoga County, whichever you want to say. And uh, in rush hour, they used to take me 35 minutes to go six miles and it was six miles full of expletives because there's always tons of cars into the sun and um, you know, kind of burnt me out. And this is 35 minutes of driving fast, listening to loud music, doing some good thinking along the way. And by the time I get to the farm, I'm like amped up to do some farming. So this uh, presentation today is uh, called Finally Going Big from Urban Orchards to 20 Acres. And it's not about necessarily growing pawpaws. It's about my learning curve last year of scaling up. 
So I've had a lot of experience growing in a lot of different formats, but never in a big space. And that's what this is about today. Now, something horrible happened to me at three o'clock in the afternoon today. And that horrible thing was I was eating a grass-fed cheeseburger and a yellow jacket wanted some and stung me on the tongue. So I went to the EMS and those guys were great. They looked at my tongue and said, there's no stinger. They gave me Benadryl, which seems to be helping, but it hurts. And if I'm slurring or if I have to drop this thing to like spit or something, I'm, I'm sorry. That's just what it is. Now, also happy to inform you, I'm on my second pair of underwear and my second shirt today, and I'm probably afterwards going to change again because it is hot here in Athens, Ohio. So, and then again, right before all this started yesterday, I get a call from the guy who organizes this tent, the guy named Rob Brandon. I think a lot of people call him Dr. Rob. Um, their projector went down. So I'm going to have to entertain y'all without pictures. Uh, I have my laptop here so I can recognize the workflow of my presentation. Every once in a while, I'll have to describe a picture to you. And it's like reading a book. And you can kind of just imagine it and hope there isn't a movie that ruins that imagination of yours. So right now, finally going big. Urban Orchards, 20 acres. It's just a nice picture, a cluster of pawpaws. This next picture that you're not seeing is a picture that was just taken like two weeks ago on top of a van looking down on me in my urban orchards. The urban orchards are doing insane. Again, 300 pounds in like five or six days. It is all my pawpaw dreams coming true all at once. I thought this was gonna be a big year, but uh, it's way bigger than I expected. It's, it's amazing. So I love this picture. I wish I could show it to you. Um, one of the things to take notice in this picture, but you can notice it right here, are the short shorts. This is uh, part of one of the things I learned last year, and we'll talk about that later. I've been a cargo pants guy, cargo shorts guy for like 20 years. I'm the dude who wears them in like five degree weather in Cleveland, Ohio, but no longer. So picture the orchards of me, woohoo! Another picture showing the scale. Another picture of the urban orchards. So up in uh, Lakewood, Ohio, these urban orchards, there's two of them. One's 4,800 feet, the other's 4,800 feet. There's three rows of 15, um, 15 pawpaws a piece. In between those rows of pawpaws is asparagus, and in between some of that stuff is elderberries. So extremely dense plantings. That's one of the things I've learned a lot from urban agriculture is to make the most use out of the space you got. And if one of the things I'm like super proud of is the denseness of my plantings and not wasting space. But the two plots are very close to each other, but one is like all full sun. And then the other one has a silver maple that blocks a lot of the sun. This, the silver maple site still produces, but they're basically, um, in terms of harvesting, they're like two weeks apart. So the full sun comes in really early in August. And then the site with some shade comes in kind of about now. And you know, there's crossover in that time frame, but you get this kind of, kind of slow extended harvest. So I just kind of want to show you guys those pictures I feel like you are all imagining right now, and I like that. Picture of a pawpaw harvest. This is 41 pounds. Woohoo! This next one's 55 pounds. All right. So in the fall of 2019, uh, this is pre-COVID. Uh, back in 2014, my wife and I had a kid, our first one, our only one. That's cool. And she basically 
you know, she was, did a, she was a part-time yoga instructor and watched the kid for five or six years. And I worked a professional job at the Cuyahoga Soil and Water Conservation District. The hardest part of the job was saying that name of the, the company, Cuyahoga Soil and Water Conservation District. It took me like four months to learn that. But uh, it sounds like an amazing job, but for the most part, I was like a grant writer desk jockey. I was, you know, getting carpal tunnel from sitting down and holding my arm like this with the mouse. I was getting cramped up. My neck always hurt. It kind of sucked. We weren't, we're always promoting trees and doing all this stuff, but we were never growing trees. We might plant them, but then we would let them just do whatever. And if they lived, they lived. And if they died, they died. And as a farmer, I want that stuff to grow. So conceptually, I had a hard time with this job. So in fall of 2019, my wife, who actually looks like she might walk in here in just a minute, um, was saying she wanted to get back into the workforce. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'm really sick of this job. So we started looking for a farm and she started looking for a gig. And uh, we, we bought a farm in Henrietta Township about 35 minutes away from our home. Uh, one thing to know about me is I am an imperfectionist. I don't believe in perfection and I don't necessarily believe in efficiency either. If God wanted me to be efficient, I would have been born a robot. And as a human being, we're bound for mistakes. And if you're looking for perfection, well, you quite frankly, probably will never find it. So once we started looking, you know, I hear a farmer's looking for like five, six years for the perfect farm. I'm like, what are you looking for, man? So we wanted to be close to where we live in Lakewood. We want to stay in this little town of Lakewood. Uh, my kid's going to school. He's an only child. I kind of want him to be rooted in a place. So I wanted a place within like 30 to 40 minutes. A lot of the places we were looking at were stupidly expensive, like mansions in the woods or podunk places in the woods. Um, spiritually, it would really bother me to buy 13 acres of woods and cut them down in order to grow trees. I just, I, I spiritually, I cannot do that. So we find this place, it's 20 acres. It was a corn bean field for God knows how long. Uh, he was doing direct drilling, which is good because the soil quality, uh, the soil structural quality was amazing. The big downside of this farm was on the west side of the plot, we have big, big power transmission lines. So I really only wanted 12 acres, like 10 to 12 was what I was going for. This place was 20 and with the power lines, it cuts out about six of what I can do with trees. So I'm still getting what I want, but I'm getting a little bit more. Um, and then, you know, there's easements on it. So there's a little bit of a lack of privacy by the power company. At the same time, this is my farm. It's a second home. It's not a place where I'm always going to be. So uh, we decided to, to buy it. It was a great deal and we got it. But this picture that says fall of 2019, where we're going through this mental exercise of my wife wanting to get back to work, me wanting to quit my job and uh, start planting some trees. There's a old, uh, I think it's a Chinese proverb, but it's probably attributed to a lot. Does anybody know the best time to plant a tree? Yesterday. 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, a long time ago. I'm middle-aged, I'm 46. Uh, creating a big pawpaw orchard has been a goal of mine for probably 10 years, and it's just been uh, a matter of all the things coming together when I could do this. But again, fall of 2019, wife wants to get back to job. I want to get back to farming hardcore. 
and we found this place because I am not getting any younger. So this picture is a picture of my buddy Bob Johnson in Peru, Indiana with his orchard that was planted in 2014. It's a beautiful picture. And uh, another buddy of mine called Darren who owns a nursery in southern Indiana called Brambleberry Farm. If you ever need to look up some folks, uh, I highly recommend it. So we bought 20 acres. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do next? Because I've never worked with the space that large ever before. All right, so this picture is a panoramic picture of the farm. It looks kind of cool. It's just flat old school cornfield. You guys can you know what that looks like, right? It's flat. It's cornfield. It's mowed down. And the title of it is uh, A Plan. And uh, the name of the farm, <coughs> excuse me, the name of the farm is Old Hushers Indigenous Orchards. And hopefully someone, does anybody know what acronym that is? Come on, y'all are smart. All right, we got that. So it's called Old Hushers Indigenous Orchards. Uh, what I, you know, the colloquial we focus on is native North American fruits with pawpaws being my major, major interest. So the focus there is pawpaws. Um, the other second interest is American persimmon. Third is gonna be elderberry and aronia. That being said, I told you all I'm an imperfectionist. So there's also a hundred chestnuts that are in there and I'm getting a hoop house in October and that's gonna be nothing but figs. So again, I have a focus and then there's a little bit of deterring from that, but not too much. There's also uh, a very small section of northern ripening pecans. And then there's also another section of cultivar uh, shag and shellbark hickories. Have you guys ever had any of those? They are, I only had them about two years ago. They're mind blowing. Uh, they're in the pecan family. It's just the nuts don't crack out as easily as they do in a pecan. And that's been the holdup in cultivation. That being said, some old timers definitely found some great cultivars and there's some great cultivars of shag and shells. That section of the farm is called Old Hushers Hickory Haven. And there's only seven trees there right now, but eventually it's probably gonna be about 30 or 40 different uh, cultivar hickories. So this is the focus is these native North American crops that have been kind of underutilized, underlooked at. Uh, last year, we got the proverbial we, which is just me, Rosely. Um, we got 176, the initial planting of pawpaws was 176 pawpaws. By the end of the year, we got 250 in. By the end of the year, this year, we got another like 75 in. So it's roughly right now about 325 pawpaw trees about 75 persimmons, 100 chestnut, 200 aronia, 200 elderberry, three pecans, not a lot, and seven of these shag and shellbark hickories. But I might be getting ahead of myself. I only put, in, put this presentation together on Wednesday. So, uh, a plan. I got a name, Old Hushers Indigenous Orchards. So one of the things I've always worked with, even before I was doing trees, is I've always worked with woven landscape plastic fabric. You guys kind of know the, the thing I'm talking about. So doing urban ag, they come in 300 foot rolls and doing urban ag, I think I needed like two and a half of them for my two small orchards in Lakewood, Ohio. So this picture that you're not seeing right now is a picture of my van loaded up with landscape fabric and the title 900 bucks. So this is uh, important in two ways. So one, the $900, is way more money than I've ever spent 
on landscape fabric before. Staples for landscape fabric go for like 45 bucks for a thousand of them. So in my first planting in my first year, I spent somewhere around $1,100 on landscape fabric alone and the staples to go down. So, oh my God, I'm spending way more money than I ever have in my entire life. But more importantly, I, again, I don't like to think too hard. I kind of gave you guys a hint. How long do you think those first rows of my pawpaw orchards are? Landscape fabric comes in 300 foot long lengths. Exactly. And again, I needed something to just demarcate it. I did not know how to move forward, but I wasn't going to do 180. I wasn't going to do 200. I'm just going to roll these out, man. I'm just going to, and that's it. And that's all I did it was, that's how I started is that was my initial plan. I'm going to go 300 feet out into the field. The, the width of the field is 600 foot wide. So I already had that as a, you know, a, a constant. It was just a matter of how deep I'm going to go this first year. And then when I looked at 300 feet, it looked like with the stuff I had in stock and with the stuff I'm buying, it looked like I could fit it all in. Again, it was just kind of touchy-feely, feeling it out, and it worked. Now, before I move forward, if anybody has questions or concerns, like, let's keep it informal, raise your hand, shout it out, just, you know, let's just kind of go with that. Yes. Aronia, also called the American chokeberry, which, you know, if antioxidants were, you know, if the, the it antioxidant of the 90s was the blueberry, and then the it antioxidant of the millennium was the elderberry, the aronia is the new it antioxidant of like presently. So a lot of deep blue colors and those antioxidants that come with the deep blue colors. And it is a native North American crop. And despite the name chokeberry, they actually taste pretty good. So back at the district, which I think is a USDA thing, I'm not really too sure. We had a saying, don't guess, soil test. So, you know, there's like 17, 13 main nutrients that a plant needs and a soil test is going to tell you what is or isn't in your soil. Now there's a buddy named Steve Larson who helped me with this, who I don't know if he's here, here right now, but he's somewhere in the greater picture of here. But I had this area mapped out 300 feet this way, going deep and 600 feet wide. And the day we we're gonna soil test, I had a stack of clean, um, clean uh, plant trays, you know, the 10, 20 trays that you normally do like your tomato seedlings or pepper seedlings in. I only had seven of those. And you know how many soil tests we did? Seven. I like your style though. So we had seven of these and it wasn't six, it wasn't 10. It was, I had these trays. We're going to break it up into this amount of space because that's what we had. And that's how I like to work is work with what I have. So I got seven soil tests done in a 600 by 300 field, which that's roughly about four acres. So urban, urban soil tests always come back high and like absolutely everything you like when you get an urban soil test you'll have like like off the chart levels of phosphorus off the chart levels of potassium off the chart levels of calcium off the chart levels of magnesium and typically a high ph and back when i worked at the district i interpreted soil tests for people all the time and kind of would give them pointers on what to do and you know given like 30 soil tests that all look like this that's kind of what you get used to 
So I got these seven soil tests back and I did the most horrible thing. I looked at them and I'm like, man, this is different than what I've ever seen before. And I don't like ever doing what I'm about to say I did. I put all that data in Excel spreadsheet. It killed me to do it, but I did it. And when I did it, everything in the picture right now is an Excel spreadsheet. Boring, boring, boring. And everything came back low, very low, low. Calcium, there was two incidents, incidences of optimum. Um, but everything else was extremely low to very low. So basically what that tells me is I need to mineralize this soil extensively, which a lot of times in urban ag, you don't have to, it's like you almost have to just add er, uh, organic matter to mineralize the nutrients that are already in the soil. Do you guys know what mineralize means? Sometimes mi mineralize means those nutrients are available for the plant to take up. In urban soils that are like completely um, compacted and not full of organic life, those nutrients are there, but they don't really go into the plant because they're locked up. And to mineralize a nutrient means able for a plant to suck it up. So I didn't have any nutrients whatsoever. So, boom. What this picture is right now is my garage at the farm and there's nine 2,000 pound totes of minerals. And that's more than I've ever had to use in my life. So that's 18,000 pounds, you know, the, 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 the totes that are like about, I don't know, three and a half feet tall, about probably four foot wide by four foot wide. You guys know what I'm talking about? So nine of those 18,000 pounds of minerals with a price tag of about 4,000 bucks. Again, this is more money than I've ever been used to spending in my entire life for any of this agricultural stuff. So I'm learning the soils are different. I'm learning the cost is way higher. And, you know, we bought the farm already, so we're already all in. So it's just a matter of like, okay, am I going to do this or not? <sighs> Lots of minerals. So that was 12,000 pounds of, uh, oh, what's the very basic stuff that brings the pH up? I'm brain farting right now. No, sulfur brings it down. Lime. So it's 12,000 pounds of lime, 6,000 pounds of rock phosphate, 400 pounds of humates, and 600 pounds of... Um, kelp is what we put into the soil. Oh, this one's a bomber. I'm in farm country. There's tractors everywhere, right? I can get tractor help. No problem. I can find a dude who's got a tractor to do work. So this one, this, this slide is a tractor and it's called failure at outsourcing tractor help. So I went to one of the tractor shops around town, which there's like three or four really close to me. And I was like, is there anybody who like does this work? I'm, I need an area tilled. I need an area spread with some minerals. And then I need the, I put a cover crop down that same exact year. Is there anybody who like you guys can recommend? And they're like, oh yeah, Joe, I forget the dude's name. But they give me his card. I talk to him. We negotiate. We do all that stuff. And uh, what we negotiated was a tractor. We negotiated him as a driver. We negotiated a 400 pound hopper and... Let me think, there might have been one other thing, but uh, it'll come to me. So instead, when we're all supposed to start spreading these minerals, he comes to the farm and he said, Justin, I couldn't find a 400 pound hopper. So I had this 100 pound hopper and I had this tractor. And what I'm gonna do instead is 
I'm just gonna let you borrow it and I'm gonna basically rent it to you. So my plan was like, I'm gonna be the dude that's shoveling the, the 18,000 pounds into the popper and he's gonna be the dude spreading it and we're gonna be a team and we're gonna work it out and it's gonna be awesome. But instead he brings over again, a 100 pound hopper when we're looking for a 400 to 500 pound. And how many pounds of minerals were we talking about? 18,000 pounds. So when you're thinking about that, that's a lot of, I was about to use an expletive word. That's a lot of Fargan trips back and forth with a 100 pound hopper. He did give me a five minute tutorial on how to use a tractor. So I guess I am grateful for that. But uh, again, I thought we had a workflow. I'd be shoveling, he'd be spreading. I'd be shoveling, he'd be spreading. But instead, the first day he drops it off. I'm shoveling, I'm spreading. Gratefully, um, the farm was bought during COVID, which sounds kind of funny. But last year, I had an amazing, amazing amount of help and volunteers. I was telling Mark in the North American Pawpaw Growers tent that I had over 30 people come out last year and help me. So when I went to handy dandy social media asking for people to like, can someone shovel and dump into the hopper while I'm spreading? I had uh, two friends, well, three friends helped me out. So I was not having to get up and down and up and down from the tractor. And it took three days, which wasn't really that bad. But again, it's not what I negotiated and or expected to be doing. So I call that failure at outsourcing tractor help. That being said, this story continues. So this old man, he got a new tractor, you know, a year before, two years before, I don't know how long ago it was, but he had a big old tiller that he's never attached to this new tractor. And the day we're supposed to till, he brings his new big tractor over with his tiller. And it takes us three hours to attach the tiller to the new tractor. And it was, uh, you know, the cotter pins, not what's the, what's the bigger cotter pin called? Uh, What's that? Yeah, a hitch pin. So the hitch pins were wrong. We needed a PTO extender. We needed all sorts of stuff that like, again, I'm not mechanical. I've never used a tractor. The reason why I'm trying to outsource this help is because this dude is supposed to be a pro and he was further from it than pro at all. Very amateur. Three and a half hours later, before we're supposed to get started, he or after we're supposed to get started, he finally starts tilling. He's telling him like, all right, we're getting there. We're getting there. And uh, I see the neighbors. I haven't met the neighbors yet. And all of a sudden they are mowing their lawn. I've met a lot of men on tractors in the country. That's one of the things it seems like you do is you meet men on tractors. And that uh, is cool, I guess. It's, so I'm meeting the neighbors. We're talking about what I'm going to do. This, uh, the neighbor that I have next to me, like I basically bought his, the last remaining part of his family's big, big big farm. So I got 20 acres, but it used to be like a two, 300 acre family farm since like 1904. So we're talking, it's cool. I like these guys, they're nice. And then all of a sudden I see this old timer turning the tractor around. I'm like, oh man, that can't be good. And uh, this tractor hit a rock. It broke a chain somewhere in the tiller mechanism. And basically he got four and a half rows of tilling done and it stopped. And then he said, I'm gonna to have to come back. And then he didn't call me for three weeks. So I'm realizing this is kind of not going anywhere fast. And I'm still knowing that I need something like a lawnmower. I might need like an ATV. And I kind of, looks like I'm probably gonna need a tractor. So I talked to my wife 
And lo and behold, you know what we did? We bought a tractor. This picture is my kid on the tractor. I got a Ventrac tractor. Have y'all ever heard of those? They're awesome. They are made in Orville, Ohio. So I bought American, I bought Ohioan. And uh, the company used to own the company Steiner. Um, and they sold out to a big company and started a new one. But for me, who's not very mechanically inclined, they are kind of a tractor company. It's kind of like buying into Apple, where they, you, you, once you buy their one tractor, you basically buy their parts. You don't buy third-party extension PTOs and then an, another tiller. It all works together, which that's not for everybody at all. But for me, that's really what I needed because I, I, I don't know how to do this stuff. I, I don't know. And again, that's what worked for me. It's not for everybody. It also attracted to me that it was made in Ohio. And these things are really small tractors, but they're like 31 horsepower. They go a little bit faster than your average tractor. They go up to like 12 miles per hour. So it can do the mowing, it can do the tilling, it can do the spreading. You can get a brush hog for it. It has all the attachments that I personally need. It's got snowblower stuff. So I bought a tractor, which ended up being more than my wife and I's cars alone. Um, and it was done over credit and it was done over the phone. Like I, when I get a credit card, I still like write it on paper and send it in. So to buy like one of the most expensive things I've ever bought in my entire life, like via fax machines and over the phone was a really kind of odd feeling. But this tractor has been nothing but amazing and it gets the job done. So I have a pretty unique layout at this farm. We know it goes about 300 foot deep, but what about all the other spacing? So this is a picture of kind of the spacing that you can't see. So it's based on zero and 42 feet. At the zero and the 42 feet mark <clears throat> are chestnuts. At the seven and 35 feet mark are either their elderberry or their aronia. At the 14 and the 28 are either pawpaws or persimmons. And at the 21 is basically a 10 foot by 300 foot uh, deep, uh, what you would call alley crop row. I haven't done anything with the alley crops yet. That's for the future. So zero feet chestnut, seven feet elderberry, 14 foot pawpaw, 21 foot alley crop, 28 foot another pawpaw, 35 elderberry, 42 chestnut. Now, I don't know if you guys know this about pawpaws, but the grafted pawpaws only have a life of about 20 to 25 years. So the grafts are eventually going to die. But in that time frame, you know what's going to grow really big and strong? The chestnuts. So the plan is these elderberries and aronia are going to grow, you know, six, 10 feet tall. And those are going to be kind of an early, like an early yielding thing to make a little bit of money on. Once you have those, those are very easily propagated. So once you have them, you know, there's an expense up front, but you're always going to be able to take cuttings from those nonstop. And they're also kind of, and I don't like to use this word, but they're kind of expendable. The pawpaws are going to grow up and they're going to get close to those elderberries, but there's still going to be enough room to, to wiggle and work. Once those pawpaws get old and die, uh, the canopy is just going to get enclosed by the chestnuts. So it's kind of a long view of successional thinking of where these trees are at now and what the tree landscape is gonna be in the future. Um, what I've learned from urban agriculture that I don't get from the rural folks as much is incredibly dense plantings. That's kind of one of 
my personal hallmarks, one of the things that I hang my hat on and take a lot of pride in. And that's what I'm doing in this bigger setting. I'm still trying to keep stuff super dense. Man, I wish I had pictures to show you guys. Oh, C-A-U-V. I don't know what that means, but I know what it means, but I don't know what this stands for. Do you guys know what that is? In Ohio, if you have a farm, you can get an agricultural assessment for your farmland to reduce your property taxes. It's a piece of paperwork that you need that you just turn in every year. And it's, you know, now that I've done it, it literally takes five minutes, but you have to re-up it every year. It reduces your taxes. But filling it out the first time, even though it takes only five minutes, was a lot of stress. And it was stress for no reason. It was just me learning how to do something new. But it's one of those things that if you lose your CAUV, you go back three years in taxes. So it can be a very heavy tax burden really quick. So something you, I, have to get done on a yearly basis and don't want to go back and pay those mice. So uh, I haven't done that in the urban setting and it's something new. Learning something new is always fun. Now, working at the conservation district, I'm really into conservation. I, I want plants and, you know, I want wildlife and bugs to have uh, all that they can eat as long as they're not eating my stuff. So this video is a pretty fun video of my kid and we got this big bag of milkweed pods. And the, one of the first things we, we did in March was he just kicked the living daylights out of this bag of milkweed pods. And they are flying everywhere. It looks like snow, but it's, it's milkweed pods. And now, like, not half my farm, but in the front area where he kicked this, there's milkweed everywhere. There is a ton of monarchs. And it was literally us just kicking seed around. And my kid really enjoyed doing that. So, a lot of my sub-planning for the farm, other than the, the, you know, the pawpaws and everything else, is to have this conservation base. Now, a great place to do that is in these poor places where I can't do trees, underneath the power lines. The USDA has money for pollinator plantings. I don't know if you guys know that. Have you guys heard of the Natural Resources Conservation Service? It's a conservation subsection of the USDA. They help farmers put conservation practices onto the ground. So I got a pretty sweet care package. It was about 12 grand. It's helping me buy a 30 by 72 hoop house. It's helping me put in three acres of pollinator plantings. It's helping me with a windbreak row and it's helped me with cover crops. So if you're into this kind of thing, uh, getting a natural resource conservation service, um, what do they call it? District conservationists over to your place to assess your farm could be a great value to you. At the same time, working with the federal government is kind of a little bit of a pain and a little bit of paperwork, but I'm quite happy. So 3,000 of those $12,000 is to put three acres into pollinator plantings, and those are going under the power lines, which, you know, I could do corn, I could do tomatoes, but I don't really want to do any of that stuff. I'd rather make flowers for the bees and the monarchs, and that's where I'm going with it. Oh man, I love this picture that you can't see. <laughs> uh, so one of the first things I did was, what's weird, I got 20 acres out in the country, right? And I th almost feel like the owner before me was OCD to not want any kind of privacy at all. Like men come over, and this is not a man or woman thing, it's men pee outside a lot more than women do. And my friends come over, we, you get people to work on something, and they're like, is there any place to pee out here? I'm like, not really, man. And that has happened to like me, it's happened to at least four or five of my male counterparts. 
and I want a lot more privacy out there. So there's a big like 40 acre cornfield directly to the west. It's also a soybean field. And beyond that is a, you know, a semi-major road. And I hate seeing the road. I hate seeing the lights. I hate it. Last year was a soy field, so I could see all that stuff. This year's a cornfield, can't see any of that stuff. But on the far western side, I put a 1,000, oh, excuse, excuse me, I put a 1,000 uh, linear foot row of sunchokes in. Do you guys know sunchokes? It's a Native American perennial sunflower whose flower smells basically like Tootsie Rolls. They're pretty awesome. At the same time, they're kind of considered slightly invasive. Um, once you put them in, they're pretty hard to get rid of. You know, I'm sure you can put glyphosate on, on them, but that's not my goal. My goal is that they grow 12 feet tall and I don't see the field, I don't see the lights. And this is a big picture of all of them in bloom right now, which is really, really quite beautiful. Oh, some things never get old is the next pick. Yeah, ma'am. Um, they support themselves to some extent and they also fall over. So it's an imperfect system, but right now they seem to be mostly standing up. I would say 90, 95% of them are standing up. No, I haven't done that, but if they do start falling over, I'll probably do, um, oh my gosh. Have you heard of the Florida weave for tomatoes? There's a, a, a tomato staking technique called the Florida weave that you can use on a lot of other stuff. You, you can find videos of it, but if that ends up being a problem, I'm gonna do something like that, which is stakes that you wrap around in a figure eight around each other and kind of holds them up, holds them securely within the, the rope or the, you know, whatever you're using. What's that? 38? I'm, I'm sorry, what, what, what? Fleur de Lee. Isn't that a painting? No, he was repeating what you said. Oh, Florida weave. I'm sorry. <laughs> Florida, Florida like the state, and weave like what you do with, uh, yeah, like making baskets. Whew, sorry about that, y'all. So this next picture is called Picking Up Rocks Never Gets Old, which is full of sarcasm because it's very tiresome. So the urban ag sites, when you work in those sites, oh yeah, well, let's talk about this guy first. What's up? Uh, no, I'm, I have no intention of selling those at all. Like if somebody wanted like poundage, yeah, I'll go harvest them. But for me, it's really about the, the screening it's about the fast growth. It's about the flower being nice for the bumblebees. Uh, you know, again, I like sunchokes, but I don't love them by any means in terms of a food. Um, no, I'm not marketing them, even though I know that they can be marketed for sure. But like a lot of people ask that question, so I'm, I'm glad you did. So urban ag, you're doing it in old land bank lots that sometimes are filled with backfill and all sorts of crap and you have to dig it out and you have to throw it in apartment dumpsters and you almost get arrested because you're throwing 200 pounds of rocks in a dumpster that's not yours. And now I don't have a dumpster, but I have the rocks. And this is a huge pile of rocks that we took out of the first field and the rest of the field is full of them too. And it's gonna get a bigger and bigger pile. So that never really, really changes. Um, that's something I got to deal with. Um, again, this has been farmed for like 90 years, so I'm really surprised there are so many rocks still there. Uh, I don't know why, how. Uh, the direct seeding, 
I, I don't know why there's so many rocks, but there's a ton. Oh, this is a picture of a chopper. These guys are lunatics, man. So one day I came to my farm last year and there's a helicopter in my backyard and he's checking the power lines between the two power lines, flying at like 40 feet low between two power lines and just like hovering as steady and slowly as possible. And I know that guy makes a lot, a lot of money because if he makes a mistake, there's gonna be problems. So being that I do have these easements on the Western border and the Southern border, there is a little lack of privacy. First Edison is the one who has the easements and they're very willing to work with me on things like putting in a windbreak. Um, they will do a little bit of spray here and there. Like I don't use sprays at all, but they will do some spray if they see some stuff, but they do what they call like limited spray, which means they come out with backpack sprayers versus like an ATV with a full tank. So they only spray the trees that are in their easements that they really don't like. Uh, but again, seeing a chopper fly between power lines is both amazing and terrifying at the same time. They do that once like every two years. Um, but I got to see it when they did it and it just seemed totally crazy. Oh, lastly, so this picture, so this picture was back when I used to wear cargo pants all the time. And it's a picture of my leg and there's this huge rash from about right there to about right there. And what happened when I was wearing cargo pants and putting in landscape fabric, there's this motion and it's kind of like you bend over, you nail this down, da, da, da. you bend over, you nail this down, da, da, da. and these shorts were so long that they basically scraped and scraped away at my skin. And I got this gnarly rash for about three years, not three years, about three weeks. And uh, we might want to call that a, a wardrobe malfunction, if you will. And so where I've worn cargo shorts for the last 15 to 20 years, I'm now wearing cutoffs, woohoo, as you can see. And I did the most cliche farmer thing in the entire world. You guys know what that is? I bought co coveralls, yeah. Um, and I love them. I was like, oh my God, now a cliche. And I'm like, oh my God, how have I never done this until now? Because they are awesome, they feel good. They look good, you have tons of pockets, you don't get these weird rashes. You don't, the other thing, you don't have a waistband, so you're not getting this like belt rubbing against your waist, which also will cause a rash sometimes when you're out in the field. So I am a huge proponent of uh, overalls at this point in my life, and I never thought I would say that. I, um, yeah, never thought I would say that. So these are the things I've learned within one year of owning a big farm now that are different than what I had ever experienced over the last 10 years of my life farming. Again, pawpaws are going to be the kind of the bread and butter, but I'm going to be doing all these different native North American crops, uh, not necessarily crops, but uh, tree shrubs, trees and shrubs. So perennial ag is what I'm into. That went a little bit faster than I was expecting. It's still 40 minutes long. Does, uh, does anybody have questions about this, that, or something else? I'm going to ask this guy first and we'll get to you, man. Yeah, absolutely. So my, my, my long-term goal is about to have, is about to have, a long-term goal is to have 12 or 1300 pawpaws there. Um, right now I only have about 300. I want to probably have about 150 American persimmon. I have about 75 of those. Uh, the, again, the elders and aronia are kind of a secondary thing that s seem to be what I call short-term gains. I'm probably gonna get those up to about four or 500 plants 
And this is, you know, this is like a two to five year plan. I can't, I'm a three quarter time dad and three quarter time farmer. And I get things done when I get them done. Uh, and it, it just, it takes a while, you know, that's, that's all there is to it. I am not familiar with that, but I will probably Google that tomorrow and see what else I can find it out. You know, I, I feel comfortable with my plantings. The trees are doing fine. It was just coming up with a basic plan, using that landscape fabric that's 300 foot long, figuring out what minerals I need to bring up that soil. My neighbor, it was pretty funny, it was pretty cool. My neighbor, before we bought the farm, I was like, wife, I think uh, I might wanna get some alpaca. Their, their manure is really good. They're really easy to handle. They poop in one place like a cat. So it's, uh, you know, I, I think we wanna get some alpaca maybe. And then when we bought the farm, she actually looked at the farm before I did because I was working a full-time job. And she's like, there's an alpaca farm next door. And that dude is awesome. He brings the manure over. Uh, we had a kid's birthday party where he brought over some mobile paddocks and a handful of alpaca and the kids pet the, uh, pet the alpaca, fed the alpaca. Uh, he's been, you know, what you call a, a great country neighbor for sure. And he's, he's awesome. And, and we don't have to take on another new thing with the alpaca. And then I also have a relationship with um, arborist uh, tree guys and they're bringing over wood chips. So uh, I believe in like organic and using organic materials and I'm getting a lot of, a lot of them for free. Yes, sir. Uh, you, no one asked that, but a lot of, a lot of the pawpaw persimmon grafting I do on my own. The elderberry and aronia I get from Hartman's Nursery up in Michigan. Uh, they have a great wholesale division that is really amazingly affordable. Um, you know, I get scion wood from all sorts of different places. Uh, you know, like last year, I was able to collect at Jerry Lehman's farm in Indiana. I have, you know, very healthy trees that I collected a lot of my own scion wood. So a lot of my scion wood now that I need is for persimmon and not for pawpaw. And even that, I, I still have a lot of that. So like sourcing scion wood isn't really a big deal for me anymore. But um, I do order seedlings. I just ordered 300 seedlings from the Missouri Natural Resources. Uh, those are supposed to be phenomenal trees. I haven't seen them yet, but I called them up. They said they guarantee um, they guarantee three sixteenths of an inch diameter on your on the trees that they sell. Which you know that's a pencil. That is graftable. And I was like, all right, I thought I was gonna buy 100 and just say whatever. And then when they told me that, I bought 300. Um, so that's where I get those. I'm gonna tell you about some law breaking, y'all. So Indiana Natural Resources has an amazing Indiana Natural Resources tree nursery. And you need to basically be an Indiana resident to order from them. And there's a handful of people that will help you get trees from the Indiana Tree Nursery. And again, what's that? Do you know that, do you know that, have you ever ordered from them before? Those trees are amazing and they're insanely, insanely affordable. I've gotten like a hundred trees from them. There's also another place up in Michigan called uh, Alpha Nursery that, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, these are seedlings. These are meant to be bulk, bare root type of stock. And uh, they're really good Alpha Nursery. There's Musters Forests in Pennsylvania. There's another one in Pennsylvania that whose name I can't remember. But yeah, there's a lot of places to get seedlings at an affordable price that you have to then graft your own onto in the meantime, which I'm happy to do for sure. Yep. 
Oh, that's a great question. So my business plan is this. A thousand trees times $5 times 50 pounds is like $500,000. And obviously I'm not gonna get that straight retail. I'm not gonna get 50 pounds per tree, but somewhere in between there, that's still like probably like 150K once all is said and done. So there's not a formal business plan. What I really recommend people doing is figuring out where they're gonna sell this stuff. Work on your marketing end. The growing, for the most part, everybody I know, everybody who wants to grow the heck out of trees or tomatoes or whatever the heck they wanna grow, they can do that very, very easily or relatively easy. It might be physical labor, you might be in 90 degrees and you might have to drink a gallon of water that day, but it's so much more fulfilling than working a desk job. But then people struggle with, holy moly, I got 200 pounds of pawpaws, what am I gonna do with these? I've been doing urban ag since 2010, and I've kind of built myself up within the Cleveland and Lakewood communities that a lot of people know me as the guy who brings great tomatoes, great Mexican sour gherkins, and now great pawpaws to the community. So I, I, I've spent like a decade doing this, and so far I've had no problems selling anything. I go on Facebook, name the, you know, like it'll be Facebook at five o'clock. My kid's out there running. He, uh, I pick him up at like three o'clock from school. He plays on the playground. We go pick up pawpaws, it's great. He's at the age where he goes under the trees and I don't. And then by like 4.30, it's like 22 pounds available, you know, 22 pound harvest, 19 one pound cartons on the front porch. Text me if you want to buy these. And in general, everything has sold out completely this year in terms of pawpaws. This week is kind of like a little bit of asterisk. Again, I've come off of 300 pounds and there's been a little more, it hasn't sold out in 20 minutes. It's sometimes taken overnight. And like, instead of them all selling out by six in the PM, they're selling out by like 11 in the morning the next day. But again, this is, um, they're coming in faster and more furious than I was expecting this year. And that's awesome, that's great. But I, I haven't worked on my wholesale uh, avenues as much as I should have. That being said, an ice cream place just bought a bunch. Uh, there's a dude who actually resells on Facebook on a site called Fruit to Sell. These people are lunatics. He takes my pawpaws and then sells them for 16 bucks a pound plus overnight shipping. And he sells out in like 20 to 30 minutes. And it's just all these people who just wanna try fruit and have the money to spend it. And I have no intention of packaging and going to FedEx and doing all, like, I, I don't want to do that at all. So uh, he's been kind of a, he's helped me out in terms of buying bulk as well. I'm gonna ask this guy first and then you next. Well, I, I haven't considered it, but by default this guy did it. And it was kind of weird because he did it without telling me. And that felt weird, it was, it was he bought them and then the next day I woke up, I haven't drank my coffee yet. I'm addicted to the screen, just like so many people. And another friend invited me to this thing called, I think it's called Fruit for Sale. And the first thing I see on this Fruit for Sale site were the pawpaws I sold this dude like, you know, last night at eight o'clock. And again, I'm groggy, I haven't had my coffee yet. I'm nothing without coffee first. And they sold out, that's awesome, but he, he didn't tell me and then he didn't, he didn't give me any type of props, so I felt kind of weird, and I didn't know how to interpret it. He gave me full, he gave me full retail. He didn't nickel and dime me. He didn't ask for a break or anything. So on my end, I technically got mine, but at the same time, I feel like disclosure would have gone a long way. 
So I, you know, I have a bunch of pawpaw piers in a handful of different states. And my buddy Bob in uh, Peru, Indiana, he's mostly a wholesaler. I'm like, man, this guy did this to me. I don't know how I feel. And he says, you know what? I'm a, I'm a wholesaler. I don't sell retail at all. I sell only bulk to people or to organizations. And at the same time, if this dude Fs up his, his end of the deal, he packages it wrong. He puts his thumb through a pawpaw. He says overnight, then says it, you know, two day priority mail and it ends up being four day or something. You aren't going to look bad because of his mistakes. So um, my buddy Bob, I feel like squared me away and he squared me away in terms of how I need to think about this. And then the next time this guy hit me up for 20 pounds of pawpaws, I did give him a little bit of a break. And then I, you know, we, we talked it through. He gave me a Inga edulis plant that I've been wanting for a long time. And now he seems like we're gonna not necessarily be partners, but we're at least gonna be friends. He's gonna buy. He has a food blogger friend who wants to do a little thing on my site. And again, I feel like had he just be like, yeah, man, I'm probably gonna eat half of these and then put them on the internet and sell them. I would have had no problem with that had he told me. And that's what I explained to him. Like, had he just told me that, man, I would've been like, cool, I'm not gonna ship them. So I haven't marketed it like that, but that default sort of has happened. Were you next or someone over here? Uh, elders in Aronia, I plan to sell to witches and herbalists. Um, the persimmons, the persimmons are, I don't know, because persimmons taste amazing. When I finally had my first American persimmon, I felt like it was the taste of autumn that I didn't know I was missing. It felt like it literally filled out the whole seasonal autumnness, like pumpkin spice and apples that I never knew. That being said, they, they really look horrible. You know, they're always mushy. They're always bruised. They're always jelly-like soft. Americans don't like jelly-like consistency. They don't like that necessarily even in the, the custardy pawpaw. So that's going to be a hard sell. So a lot of things, what, not a lot of things, but what I'm probably going to start off with is, you know, I probably have about 20 different cultivars of persimmons. So I'm probably going to work with like doing taste tests when they come in. So do like a tour and taste test. And then we tried, you know, 20 different American persimmons. So getting people interested by kind of slowly bringing them into the fold. Um, kind of want to make moonshine out of them. They're full of sugar. So that, but you know, I'm not going to sell that. That'd be just something to do. But there's going to be a ton, a ton of persimmons once those come through. I got a question for you all. Does anybody know the most uh, calorie yielding fruit tree in the world? I'm sorry, what? Avocado. Avocado, and it does it with fats and oils. But number two is persimmon, and it does it with raw prolificness and sugar. So once those come in, they come in really, really, really strong. But I am slightly worried about the marketing aspect of the persimmon. Uh, so that might be something where I start getting into like little nursery trade where I'm selling scion wood to people and not necessarily the persimmon themselves. So you know, scion wood is a means to an end and people buy and sell scion wood all the time. Do you guys know what scion wood is? Does anybody not know? I'm seeing a couple no's. Okay, so you guys know what grafting is? So the scion wood is the top part of what you, you know, so you graft on a rootstock and the stuff that you put from over here onto the rootstock is called scion wood. Also people just call them sticks in the industry once you're like, can I get some sticks? 
And that's a, a little more just kind of colloquial version of saying scion wood. So that's how most fruit trees are propagated is through this grafting process. Yes, sir. As you're walking around here, there's lots of different cultivars and cultivars. Is that something you took into consideration um, when you So I only work with cultivars. I do not work with any kind of seedlings or pawpaws. I'll work with seedlings to graft onto them to, you know, basically make them a cultivar. But I've been coming here to this fest since 2009. I've had, uh, back in the early, not the early days, that was probably the mid days of this fest, 2009 to 2012, Neil Peterson used to come with his Peterson pawpaws, which are just, they blow most things out of the water. So my first, like, delving into pawpaws where I like right here with Peterson stuff and my buddy in Athens has a bunch of trees that are wild and I'd be like Peterson stuffs are so amazing and your wild trees can be good but they can also have a lot of off-putting flavors so you know from a young interest in pawpaws I was into this guy named Neil Peterson and you know he's very much the pawpaw guru then about four years ago I had the honor of being a judge up here and I heard about this dude named Jerry Lehman who is also like kind of Neil's, you know, he's like, Neil, Neil, well, what do we say? Neil took a very professional approach to his breeding, where he did all his breeding work, and then he trademarked it, and then he licensed it to, uh, you know, all these different nurseries, and that's awesome. Layman just did it, like, when he was retired, and didn't, like, trademark anything. He just kind of did it because he loved doing it. So, like, one is kind of like Windows, and one's kind of like open source Linux, but when I was... At this, you know, the, the taste testing or the competition, what have you, all the pawpaws that were blowing my mind were all these Jerry Lehman varieties. It's just like, oh my God, this one's amazing. Oh my God, we got another Jerry variety. Oh my gosh, this one's amazing. And the Neil Peterson varieties I knew were amazing. So when I had those, I was like, okay, that's cool. I like this a lot. But I had this really strong uh, want to get Lehman varieties. So that was in a September, just like a September like this. And then in October, I was like, I have a good friend named Kevin who has a farm in New York State, but is like two miles away from my house in Cleveland. And he's like my best pawpaw friend. And I was like, Kevin, we need to go get all the Jerry Lehman stuff we can buy as soon as possible. Um, a lot of these guys, what am I trying to say in a nice way? A lot of these fellows are older and, you know, time is fleeting. And you need to take advantage of whatever time and possibilities that you have right now. And anyway, so we basically did this two-hour, not two-hour, two-day road trip where we went to southern Indiana to Brambleberry Farm and bought all of his layman varieties. Then we went down to England's nursery in Kentucky and bought all of uh, the stuff that Cliff England had at England's nursery. Uh, Jerry Lehman has since passed away. I've had, uh, last year I was lucky enough to go harvest on his farm because I know some of the people there to collect scion wood. But, uh, you know, I, I, again, I've been doing this for some extent for 12 years, taste testing and getting along and trying stuff out. And by doing it enough, I've, you know, had the opportunity to speak here, I've had taste testing, I've met some of the old timers. Um, I've, I've put myself in a great position. Jerry Lehman, I, I, again, he has passed away since we bought this. Um, I don't know if anybody knows how he passed, but he was on a pallet, on a forklift attachment, 12 feet in the air, on a tractor, collecting scion wood, not for me, but for a jerk like me, and someone 
bumped the tractor and he fell and broke his back and he died in surgery. So RIP, he was a great man. He did a lot of cool work with both persimmons and pawpaws. Um, my biggest recommendation is try to try out as much stuff as possible. Find what you really like and follow your own, you know, your own heart, your own lead. And that's mostly what I've done. I also like the sunflower a lot. I like prolific a lot. And those are like the non-trademarked old varieties that have been around for a long, long time. And again, I've had these opportunities. I've met other farmers. We do taste tests amongst ourselves. So, you know, try to get into it, into the scene, if you will, or whatever, uh, with other people. And, you know, most people are willing to share to try stuff. It's, it's, it's a good group of people that are here and doing this work for sure. Yes, sir. Honestly, I have zero idea. I haven't, I haven't looked at that like at all. I, persimmons are more of like a very secondary interest to me. Again, the pawpaws are where I want everything to be. And I love these persimmons and they, they blow my mind, but I don't know if it's three years. I don't know if it's five years. I'm just gonna treat my trees good and let them grow and build up, man. It's, I, I like overlease, but I have zero of them. I, and I don't know. And, and then I, I've got a bunch of overlease um, cyanwood this year, but then my stock trees were really, really poor. And I had, again, more kind of rare layman stuff that I was like, okay, if I'm gonna pick and choose, I can get overlease from like 100 people. This layman stuff, I don't know if I'm ever gonna get able to get again, except for my own trees in like a year or two. But overlease is like a classic, classic, classic variety. You can't really go wrong with it. What's that? Sunflower? Oh, Dallas? Okay, because there was a guy here earlier who was saying he grows in Louisiana and he can't get it to grow. So it's, and that's what I told him. It's like, I've heard of people growing in Texas and I would expect Louisiana to have similar temperatures because pawpaws like those chill hours in the winter. But I think, I guess Texas might get a little bit colder in the winter than Louisiana. I, and that's probably enough to give you your chill hours you need for the pawpaws to grow. Whereas this Louisiana gentleman probably doesn't have the opportunity to do that. And I live in Cleveland, which is, you know, four hours north of here. And like, I, I have a hard time dealing with this heat all like truth be told, like I, I'm not good in hot weather at all. And, uh, you know, you get used to what you get used to. I've always lived in colder environments. What's that? Oh, you're living South Euclid now? Yeah, absolutely, dude. No problem at all. Zero, none. I, again, my orchards are in Lakewood. Those trees are doing fantastic. Yeah, they'll, they'll love South Euclid, for sure. Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Yes, sir. So, I, uh, so again, I'm an imperfectionist. I'm growing Chinese chestnuts. So the, there is an American chestnut blight that has wiped out most of the American chestnut. But then there's also American chestnuts that are like been crossbred that are almost like 15 16ths all American and like 1 16th Chinese or 1 16th some other thing. And there's something recently that developed that has kind of made me question my ethics. Um, very recently, Cornell, I think Cornell University has put together a GMO American chestnut. And in general, I don't like GMOs, or I think I don't like GMOs, because, you know, for the most part, the GMOs are like, let's figure out a way to spread, you know, spray 2,000 acre fields with glyphosate, which is not, to me, what the goal of a GMO is, but creating an American chestnut tree and basically kind of bringing it back from the dead kind of seems like the goal if you're going to do GMOs. 
So there is these American chestnut, GMO chestnuts that have some gene editing that are allowing them not to get the blight. And I'm, I don't know how I feel. And it's like, I go like, yay, nay, yay, nay. It's Syracuse? Okay, yeah. New York somewhere, but Syracuse, I'll take a mental note. Thank you. Um, so again, I don't know how I feel about that, but I'll probably ultimately think it's a good thing. And, and also probably be like, again, what the promise of true GMO stuff, like let's bring this back from the dead versus spray millions of acres of fields with glyphosate. Woo! So I told you about my bee sting, right? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I got through this whole talk, y'all. Um, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for coming down. It's been a good, uh, a good day. They sold out of pawpaws pretty much everywhere, which that's kind of the goal. Is to make a little bit of money.